The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to wrap up our series we've been in over the past few weeks called Death to Selfie, where we've really been exploring this idea of what Jesus said when he told us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. What does that look like, and how do we do it, and how do we live a God-first life in a me-first world? We all know that we're very much in a me-first world, where it's all about me and my, and we need to learn how to grow as Christ as examples of Christ in displaying Christ's likeness in showing people the message of love and truth through our life and selflessness in our life and the way that we care about one another, the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, and the way that we react in relationships so we can grow as a person that is living that Christ-like death to self denying our flesh life. And today we're going to go through the story of the prophet Jonah. So if you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and start fishing around for the book of Jonah. See what I did there? If you are a note taker, you can write this down. I promise that'll be the only one. The Jonah Factor is the title of my message this morning. I want to tell you a little bit about Jonah. Jonah lived in a time where the Assyrians had been oppressing the nation of Israel for some 200 years. So they're living in a time where the Israelites are actively being held captive, they're being killed, they're being persecuted by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians and the Israelites have this long time thing going on where they are oppressing them and keeping them in bondage. And Jonah was a prophet of God, and God called him to go give a message from God to the Assyrians. Now, uh, what we have record of, all of the different prophets that gave messages to the enemies of Israel, Jonah is one of the only ones that we have record of that actually goes with this message of repentance, where there's actually a chance for this nation to actually turn around. And Jonah, being the patriot that he was, did not want to be the guy who was going to give a message to a group of people that had caused his family and friends and fellow countrymen and women so much pain and agony. He didn't want to be the guy. He must have, you know, picked the short straw or something. And he's going to deliver this message that could potentially have the result of God showing these people mercy if they repented. He wanted to see these guys burn. He wanted to see these guys just get, you know, a balls of fire raining from heaven on their country and on their nation because of the pain they had caused the people of Israel. But Jonah was selected to do this and he did not want to go. Matter of fact, Jonah got on a boat and went the exact opposite way of the land of Nineveh where God had called him to go give the word to the Assyrians. He just didn't want to go. He went the exact opposite direction in rebellion and defiance towards God. Well, while he's on the boat to this land called Tarshish, which is where he was going to go, there came this big, huge storm. And in this storm, the sailors are freaking out. They thought it was going to be a good day for sailing. They thought it would be a good day to take this trip. And all of a sudden, this huge storm comes, and they're trying to figure out what is going on, which God got upset, right? And so they're praying to every kind of God they could think to pray to, and the storm still isn't going away. And then they figure out, let's cast lots and see who's causing the problem. And the lot landed on Jonah, and they're like, you, it's your fault. And Jonah finally confesses to all the guys on the boat. He says, hey, 
I know this is my fault. I recognize this is my fault that we're in this predicament. I'm supposed to go to this land. I told God I wasn't going to go. I'll tell you what. Why don't you guys just throw me overboard? Because here's Jonah thinking maybe if they throw me overboard, I'll just die, right? And then I still don't have to go to the Assyrians. So Jonah is thinking it's better for him to die than have to deliver this message because he just does not want to go and deliver this message to this specific people. It's like, God, send me to anybody else except my enemy. And so the guys say, one, two, three, and they just toss Jonah overboard. And Jonah's thinking, okay, okay, I guess this is it for me. But then God caused a big giant fish to come and to eat him up. And he lived in the belly of this fish for three days. And then he finally came to where he was willing to repent and say, okay, God, I'll go deliver the message. I'll do what you asked me to do. And so the fish spits Jonah out on the shore, and that's where chapter 2 of the book of Jonah ends. So let's pick up Jonah in chapter 3, after that story that most of you who would have been exposed to the story of Jonah in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, you would be very familiar with that story, and you would know probably up until that point where Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites. And here's what happened in chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah had begun to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, they believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, anytime the scripture you'll see in the Old Testament, especially them talk about putting on sackcloth and sitting in ash. What that meant is that those people were in a state of mourning or a state of repentance. And so they would literally take off their garments and put on the sackcloth. And then they would sit in ash as a sign or a symbol that I am in deep mourning and repentance. And that's what these people did after Jonah gave them the word from the Lord. They sat and in this ash, and they began to repent and mourn over the wickedness and over the sin and over the fact that they were going to ultimately get what was coming to them. Verse 6, then this word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published all throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them be covered with sackcloth, sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here we see that even though these people were wicked, even though these people were uh, under judgment, that when they repented, that that mercy of God came through and triumphed over that judgment. Just like Scripture says in Micah 7 and 18, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight in showing mercy. God delights in showing 
showing mercy. He loves the opportunity to get to be merciful. And he is full of love and full of mercy. And in this instant, we see where God's mercy triumphed over that judgment that was that impending doom towards the Ninevites, where they were going to experience this awful destruction. They said, no, we don't want that destruction. We recognize that we have done evil, and they repent. So Jonah went and shared this word with them, and it caused repentance. So you think, right? I mean, that Jonah would be really just over the top that they listened to the message from the Lord, and it caused the change that was intended from that message for these people to turn away from their wickedness and turn to the Lord. You would think Jonah would feel like, Man, awesome. Praise God. This is great. These people are now serving God. These people have repented. They've turned from their wicked ways. That would be what we would hope to hear from a prophet of God. That would be what we would hope Jonah would have said. But Jonah's heart was focused on himself. He wasn't interested in the Assyrian soul. Instead, he just wanted revenge. He just wanted vengeance. He just wanted to see their destruction because of the pain that these people had caused him and his fellow countrymen. And here's Jonah feeling like, man, I gave them this word. Now, God, do your thing and let's, you know, get this thing over with. Send whatever plague you want to send, you know, destroy them however you want to destroy them. I'm looking forward to this destruction of these people who have hurt so many. And God didn't do it. But yet that was what Jonah was looking for. And that's a lot how we are oftentimes. We want people who have hurt us to feel the pain we felt. We want them to feel that pain. We want them to be hurt just as we have been hurt. And we feel justified in that. We feel that somehow we deserve that. And somehow God owes us that. And that's very much the attitude and the heart position that Jonah took with the Assyrians that God owed him this, that I have done what you told me to do, now why don't you go and take care of these people who have been such a nuisance to us? Part of the reason Jonah didn't want to go share this message with the Ninevites was because he didn't want them to receive the mercy of God and then somehow use that as, as just another thing that they could exude some type of dominance over the people of Israel or something that they maybe could fool the people of Israel and trick them. And so he concocted all these ideas of why he shouldn't do it and he justified why he shouldn't do it. And when he finally did it, instead of getting excited about the outcome... He instead became very angry towards God. He became very self-centered and very self-righteous. And oftentimes we can take that same attitude as Jonah took because a selfless heart is always going to seek reconciliation. A selfless heart will always seek reconciliation. And that's really at the heart of God is this message of reconciliation, that what was once lost is now found, that what was uh, a part of that family of God and, and that in, in his initial creation that was lost because of sin, that he has now redeemed, that he has bought back, that now he has given an opportunity and, and paved the way to bring them back into the fold. A selfless heart is always going to seek reconciliation. I tell people that in confrontation as well because there's times where we have to confront. So people have this idea that Christians should never be confrontational. We should never stand up for anything. We should just let everyone run over us, and that's what love is. Folks, that's not what love is at all. Love is very confrontational at times, but it does it with the right motive. And let me tell you how to always confront with the right motive. 
if your goal in the confrontation is always reconciliation, not you being right and the other person being wrong, then you'll always confront in love. And if you can't have that attitude in your heart when you know you have to confront someone with truth, then you need to pray and, and ask God to work on your heart and your attitude until you can communicate to that person with love, with the goal of reconciliation, with the goal of them doing what's right and the goal of you doing what's right and the goal of you guys actually reconciling, working through, not you being exalted as the person that was ultimately the smarter of the two or however you want to take that situation. Because we love to be right. We love to be right, and we like to let other people know when we are right. makes us feel this sense of power, this sense of accomplishment. But that's not God-honoring. That's pride at its core. And pride is driven by this selfishness, and, and it all just comes from this focus on self. And if we're going to deny ourselves, as Jesus said that we were supposed to, take up our cross and follow him, it's going to take us looking less at ourselves and more at how would Christ respond and handle this circumstance. What would Christ do in this moment? How has God instructed me in Scripture to handle this situation? How did Jesus respond when he was persecuted? When I look at Scripture, I see Jesus hanging on the cross after being humiliated and beaten and hanging on the cross in front of all of those who uh, put him there. And he looks down at the crowd and he says, he says, Father, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of love is that that would forgive them? You see, a selfless heart is looking for reconciliation. A selfish heart is looking to be right and looking for vengeance and looking for its own brand of justice. We want people to pay. We want them to feel the sting. You see, Jonah wanted his own brand of justice, and it took him experiencing loneliness and hopelessness in the belly of the fish for him to better care for those who were lonely and hopeless. The story of Jonah does not have a happy ending. It's a really strange book in the Bible. It's left open-ended. We don't really know what happened to Jonah ultimately because the book of Jonah actually ends with God posing a rhetorical question to Jonah. And he's trying to hold up the mirror, as James says, to show us our sinfulness so that we'll see our sinfulness so that we would see selfishness. And he wanted Jonah to see the selfishness so he could be broken over it. He, he tried to hold up the mirror in front of Jonah, and I don't know if Jonah saw it or not. We don't have record of what the ultimate outcome of the story was. But as James says, when that mirror is held up in front of us, we can either see the reflection and see the sin, see the selfishness, see it for what it is, or we can do, as James gives the alternative, where we look in the mirror and we turn away immediately and want to forget what we look like. We don't want to see that. We want to sweep it under the rug or we want to justify it because we want to justify our behaviors or our attitude or our heart position. We say things like, you don't know what they did. You don't know how much it cost me. You don't know how far this set me back. You don't know how much I invested in them. You don't know how much I trusted them. You don't know, you don't know how bad the sting of that pain was. And we'll justify and rationalize us holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness and wanting to be right and wanting to be avenged, and we'll justify it all day long, and it's just self. But that selflessness is always going to seek that reconciliation. Let's read on in the book of Jonah. Go over to the fourth chapter. Let's look at the first three verses of the fourth chapter. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was displeased and angry. It said he was exceedingly displeased when the people of Nineveh repented. 
They weren't just, he wasn't just a little unhappy about it. He was exceedingly displeased, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and here's, here was his prayer. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take from me my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Oh my goodness. He's already gotten to a position where he's so angry that he would rather die than live at this point. This guy is so offended and so angry towards those who have done him wrong that in his mind, I don't even want to live anymore. I'm done. I would rather die than know that these people have received mercy from you. You know, I don't want to be a part of this. Just, just, Just take my life from me, Lord. Lord, it would be better if I die. Jonah recognized the love and mercy of God in that moment because didn't he say, God, I was afraid you were going to do this. That's what Jonah said. He said, I know who you are. I know who you are. How would Jonah know who God was if he had not experienced some measure of God's goodness and mercy in his own life? You see, so Jonah wanted it for himself. He wanted mercy from God for himself. He wanted goodness from God for himself. He just didn't want his enemies to have it too. He wanted the people that he deemed worthy to have access to the mercy of God, but the people that Jonah thought wasn't worthy, of the, uh, that they weren't worthy of the mercy of God, he didn't want them to have it because that's not fair because selfishness is always interested in what's fair. We always want fair because fair means that I feel okay with the outcome or the circumstance. It means that it's all about me and my perception and and, and how I want to balance the scales of justice. And it's not fair that they get this and, and, and I have to do this. And I haven't done half the things those mean, awful Assyrians have done. And I haven't been half as naughty as they've been. But the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then we all need God's mercy. It's not like you need like half a teaspoon of mercy and another person needs like gallons of mercy. We all need mercy the same because we've all sinned. And the result of sin is separation, that death that separation from God, and we all need to be reconciled to God if we expect to have a hope of eternal life being with our Creator forever. And so for us to have that grace and that mercy given to us, it's not this person has done these terrible things, and this person has done some things that are kind of shady, but, you know, still needs a little forgiveness too. No, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there are different consequences for sin in our world that we will experience because if we've made poor choices, there are definitely consequences attached to those poor choices, and those consequences, oftentimes, we don't escape, and and quite frankly, some of those consequences we shouldn't escape because there are consequences for our decisions. That's called personal responsibility, but it still doesn't mean that we're not worthy of mercy and grace and love from God. Amen? And if it doesn't alienate us from the mercy of God, how do we as representatives of Christ in the earth, being people who have received this great mercy, 
who are we to decide who gets it and who's worthy of it and who's not? That's not our job. Our job is to be representatives of Christ in the earth, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. You know what that means in really simple terms? It's not about you. It's not about your opinion. Oh, he just said that. It's not about you and it's not about your opinion. It doesn't matter what you think if God has already said this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm sorry if that offends you or rubs you the wrong way. You can deal with God on that. But God did not say, let me consult with these humans I created and ask them their opinion on the matter. What do you think I should do with the Assyrians? I mean, I know they've been rotten and all, but you've kind of been rotten too, but I don't know. What do you think? God didn't ask how the Assyrians should be handled. He commanded Jonah to go and give a word. And God's hope was that these people would turn and repent. That's the heart of God. The heart of God would be for reconciliation. If you're on the worship team here at Word of Grace, when you walk up that ramp to come on the stage, you'll see a sign and it says it's not about you. That's because we need to be reminded regularly that it's not about us. Amen? That this isn't some performance. This, this isn't some game. This isn't something that we're just toying around with and some good ideas to come and find some inspiration once a week. That's not what we're doing here. We're trying to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness because there is a world that's hopeless and lost and dying and needs to see something more than what this world has to offer. And that's the hope within us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Jesus in you. But we have to let Jesus shine through us, not just be something that we get for ourselves. It's not just our own personal relationship with Jesus and we never are Christ to the world. How can we say that we know him if we can't show him to others? It's not just for us because it's not about us. You see, even though Jonah recognized the love and mercy of God, he couldn't fathom how God would spare these people. And he continues on this little rant. Let's keep on going in verse 4. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Oh, man, I can imagine God asking that. Woo, that just sends a little chill down your spine. I mean, God's saying, you like being angry, buddy? This is fun, huh? You do well to be angry? Is this fun being angry at me? at the Ninevites. Is this fun? You like this? Do you do well to be angry? And so how does Jonah respond? Verse 5, he went out of the city, verse 5, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made himself a booth, like a fort, like your kids make out of the couch cushions. <laughs> he made himself a fort, and he sat in it. And he sat in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now this isn't in the Bible, and so this may just be the Pastor Derek version, which is not always accurate. <laughs> but I have this picture of Jonah with his arms folded, sitting in his little hut that he made. And he's looking at the city, and he's going, I'm going to sit here till you destroy them, Lord. Lightning, I don't care. Wind, I don't care. Earthquake, whatever, what you got. He's sitting there pouting. I can't believe God showed them mercy. Apparently, this was extremely personal to Jonah, which lends me to think or believe that there was something that happened that hit really close to home with the Assyrians, with Jonah. Something really personal, because he just wasn't taking the burden of his fellow countrymen. He was, there was something personal here with Jonah. And as I look at the way he's responding and reacting, I don't know what happened. I don't know if something happened to a, a friend 
or a brother or, or a mother or a father. Someone got enslaved. Someone got killed. Someone uh, got, uh, just, just got abused. I don't, I don't know what happened. But whatever it was, it drove Jonah to feel like these people are not worthy of the mercy of God. These people are not worthy of the love of God. And these people, they're, they're, they're just the worst of the worst. And I can't believe out of everybody who could have went that God chose me. I believe God chose Jonah for a reason. Because God was trying to show Jonah something. Yeah, God could have picked anybody to go deliver that message. But he picked the guy that probably had a bone to pick with the Assyrians. Because God was trying to do something in Jonah too. He wasn't just trying to do something in the Assyrians. He was trying to do something in Jonah's heart too. He was holding the mirror up in front of Jonah and trying to show him something. He tried to show him. He kind of caught a glimpse of it in the belly of a fish. When, which when you're in the belly of a fish, I don't know if you've had that experience or not. But I would imagine, I would imagine that being in the belly of a fish, that you would think about life, you know? That you're kind of contemplating some things, and you're wondering, hey, what, how did I end up here, you know? <laughs> I mean, that would be one of those times that you would ask those questions. And he was put in a hopeless scenario. There was no hope of him getting out of that fish. It was God had to do it, all right? So here he is in a hopeless scenario, but sometimes when you're in those lonely, dark places, you're confronted with yourself. And when you're confronted with yourself, how you respond is going to determine the outcome often. And Jonah chose in that moment to see a little bit of his reflection. And he repented enough to at least escape the fish and then to go and obey God and follow through with what he was supposed to do. But then he's still mad about the outcome. He reverted right back to self. You see, when Jonah's circumstances began to accommodate him once again and began to be comfortable and normal because being in a fish is not normal... When he began to be back in the ebb and flow of his normal life, his normal routine, and he's out of the uncomfortable situation, he reverts right back to his selfish behavior. Even after God worked a miracle by sparing these people because they responded to the word that he gave. But when Jonah was comfortable, he went right back into it. And then when he got mad, he sought comfort yet again. Where did he seek comfort from this time? From a little fort. I'm going to build a booth hang out in there and pout for a little while. And then check this out. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So here's Jonah yet again. Even after he's built his booth, he's still getting uncomfortable because he's patiently waiting on God to destroy the people who deserve to be destroyed in his mind. And so God, in his mercy, causes a plant to come up. And Jonah's in the shade. So Jonah's chilling out under this plant that grew overnight. All right? So God did a miracle yet again to give Jonah a little bit of comfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. What? Is God like playing like practical jokes or something on Jonah? What's going on? Could you imagine? You're like, what? This plant grew in like a day. This is crazy, and it's big enough to give me shade. And you're like, this is awesome. And then the next day, you're like, where did my plant go? It just withered away. And a worm ate it. I mean, what kind of worm was that? <laughs> Must have been Thanksgiving for the worm, right? So here's the thing. 
When the sun rose, verse 8, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind and sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being at night, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there's more than 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? And that's the end of the book of Jonah. That's where it ends, with a question. It ends with God posing a question, saying, Jonah, I gave you comfort, and then I took it away. And you're still more concerned about your comfort and your brand of justice than you are these people. I am so blown away, Jonah. Should, God asks this rhetorical question, and he's saying, Jonah, are you going to still focus on your comfort? And Jonah says, yes. Yes, I am. At least Jonah was honest. He didn't give the Sunday school answer like you or I would. We would say, oh, I'll put God first. But then do we live it? We'd say, oh, yeah, I'm going to forgive him, but then do we do it? We know the right thing to do, but much like Jonah, we're so focused on ourselves. And the only time that we will allow ourselves to see the reflection in the mirror of our sinfulness is when we're uncomfortable when we may be in a place of discomfort or we may be in a place of hopelessness, that's when people oftentimes reach out to God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes when we get comfortable, we get so focused on ourselves and we get so focused on us that we miss the mark and we, we miss the, the, the point that you and I are called to Christ's likeness, that you and I are called to be representatives of Christ, and that we carry a message, that we carry a message of reconciliation. You know, we can sit here and, and give Jonah a hard time all day long. We can go, oh, Jonah, psh, that guy. You know, that guy needed to chill out. But how many times are we just like Jonah? How many times are we just like him? How many times do we respond the same way when it comes to showing mercy, when it comes to showing grace when it comes to showing love, when it comes to the message of reconciliation towards those who have done us wrong. You see, self-righteousness is extreme religious pride. Self-righteousness is extreme religious pride. It was the same issue that the Pharisees dealt with when they would interact with Jesus. It's the very same attitude that was in the Pharisees, that self-righteous pride, that selfishness. And we quickly write someone off if they don't look a certain way, if they don't behave a certain way, or perhaps they've offended us and they don't deserve proper treatment. So we ignore them, we snub them, we gossip about them, and we share our offense with other people in hopes that they too will join our offended club. And we share those things with other people, and, and, and we know that we have really taken the issue to heart when that person begins to experience some sort of trial in their life and it causes just a little party inside of us. We kind of party when something goes wrong. We kind of, we kind of get a little excited, a little <laughs> kind of I told you so. I knew that was coming. I could have seen that from a mile away. Oh, yeah, well, 
I knew that was going to happen. Every time we say those little snarky remarks, it just reveals the self-centeredness and pride in us. Those things should not come out of our mouths as Christ followers when another person falls or another person experiences calamity. Why should we rejoice when someone else experiences something difficult in their life? What joy should we receive from that as followers of Christ? Does God rejoice when someone dies without having had made their life right by putting their faith and trust in Christ? Does God celebrate when the atheist passes away? Or does God still weep over that person because they didn't receive his love and they rejected his love? Is God more interested in the plant or the person? You see, oftentimes we will celebrate over those little victories we call them in our own lives when we were proven right because it strokes our ego. It makes us feel justified. It makes us feel right because that person did this and this and this to us. Well, I don't think anyone here has been treated worse than Christ was treated when he was beaten and he was wounded for your transgressions and my transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquity. I don't think any one of us has experienced that measure of suffering. I don't think any of us were crucified on a cross and, and, and poked fun at and, and mocked and scorned and, and all sorts of things and spat upon publicly. You know, and we think that our offenses are so justified in our expectation of, of, of seeing judgment wrought out to the other person, but yet Christ, after all of that, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we want to hold on to an offense because somebody didn't talk to us. And we want to hold on to an offense because somebody looked at us the wrong way. And we want to live in the land of assumption and become angry towards our brother and our sister. And we want to allow little things to trip us up. And we miss the Christ-likeness that God has called us to. You see, Jonah was so arrogant in saying, God, I've done my part. Now do what you're going to do to these people. Give them what they deserve. But the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel is grace. Grace doesn't give us what we deserve. The message of Jesus, the gospel, is taking the punishment we deserved so we could be reconciled restored, healed, set free, and made whole again by a loving and merciful God. So Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, he's very clear, he says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves, so you can boast about it. But rather, it's a gift that God gave you. It's something that he did all by himself, and you just receive it. Receiving the love of God compels us to give the love of God. Receiving the love of God compels us to give the love of God. So, if we say we have received the love of God, but we are unwilling to give the love of God to other people, then have we really received the love of God? You see, you can learn all sorts of Sunday school answers. You can learn the right answer to the question when it's asked. You can give the right response you can give the right response in Sunday school. You can give the right response in front of your peers. You can give the right response, response to a pastor. You can give the right response even when you feel God asking you a question. But here's the really more important issue is that are we being authentic? Is it genuine or is it just something rehearsed? Because it doesn't mean that's what we truly believe. 
That doesn't mean that's really what we think just because we know the right thing to say. Because if I have been a recipient of the love of God, the love of God, here's what it does if I've really received it. It compels me to be generous with that same love that's been given to me. It's the love of God that's been shed abroad in my heart that changes the way I act and react. It changes my responses. Because before I experienced the love of God, the true genuine love of God, before I had an encounter with God and His great love, I acted just completely and solely out of self. It was all about me. But then when I received the love of God, it begins to alter and change the direction of the way that I treat people, the way that I care for other people, the way that I'm willing to uh, give and receive forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and the mercy and grace that's been given to me. I, I become a, a conduit to allow the love and mercy of God to flow through me. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 through 7 says this, but understand this, Paul says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They're going to be proud. They're going to be arrogant. They're going to be abusive. They're going to be disobedient to their parents. They're going to be ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women burdened with sins, and led astray with various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So these people are always learning, Paul said. They have a form of godliness. They have an appearance of godliness. They look pretty godly on the outside. They're doing godly things, there's no power to it. You want to know why there's no power to it? Because they're not really experiencing that love of God, or otherwise they would be able to share it with other people in a very genuine and authentic way. Come, they've become too focused on themselves, and they've made it about them instead of about Jesus. We can do that as Christians so easily. We can make church about us. We can make serving God about us. We can make uh, all the Christian things we do about us, and we miss that it's not about us. It's about Him. We can so easily get focused on ourselves, and that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. To when the mirror's held up, we go, oh, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to see that. But if I'm being a true recipient of the love of God, it changes me. It does something to me. That means I'm spending time with Him, and I'm open to His love. And that means the things that make me feel good and the things that challenge me and bring me to a place of brokenness and repentance, because it's all done in love. The reason that this, this series has been so challenging to us is because God loves us enough to put in His Word things that are going to challenge us to bring us to a place of confrontation with ourselves so we can deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. It, Jesus never said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and I'll never tell you how to do it. It's a big mystery. I hope you figure it out. He, he, he. No, Jesus shows us in Scripture how we do this. He didn't set us up to fail. He set us up to succeed. But part of growing and succeeding as a follower of Christ is being someone who is willing to not walk away from the mirror when it's held up. But to look at the sinfulness, 
to look at those things and see it and recognize it and say, yes, I have lived very selfishly or I acted very selfishly and I made something all about me that shouldn't have been all about me. So I am going to instead make the decision to deny myself, to take up my cross and follow Jesus. So what would Jesus do in this scenario? How would Christ respond? Is there anything I need to mend? Is there anything I need to fix here? Is there anything I can learn from this? God, help me see that it's not about me. God, help us see that it's not about us. Because I don't want to have an appearance of godliness and there not be any power to it. There's no substance to it. There's nothing to it because it's just a form. Anybody can look good on the outside. Anybody can say all the right things. Just as Jonah, he knew what to do. But then when it came down to it and his heart was exposed, God said, what do you really care more about, man? What do you care more about? You care about a plant? Yeah, I care more about a plant right now. Because I'm offended. Because I'm mad. Because it was wrong what they did. And you know what? It was wrong what they did. Just because you extend grace or just because you extend mercy or you forgive someone for wrong that they've caused you doesn't make what they did okay. It doesn't mean it's okay. That's why, that's why there's consequence for those things. And there's consequence for, for things like that. And yes, yeah, sometimes people have done bad things. Sometimes they get away with it, unfortunately. But we have to trust God in those scenarios instead of us trying to be the people that delve out justice. Because that's not our job. It's our job to love as Christ loved. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends with those people who have offended you. But it does mean that you can find freedom yourself and not hold on to that and be drinking that poison hoping that other person gets sick. Because it's only making you sick. It's only hurting your relationships. It's only hindering you. It's not hurting the other person, but you think it does because the enemy wants you to believe the lie that it does, but it doesn't. It's just a trap. That's why it's a trap from the enemy to try to get you to get hung up on something that happened. And the person that did it might even be dead. Something that happened to someone a long time ago. And people hold on to stuff. Or maybe it's a group of people. Maybe there's certain inerrant prejudices that you grew up with towards certain nations or certain people. And you're holding on to that offense. And you're holding on and you're angry towards those people. And it's ruining our witness because the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19, he said that we are those ambassadors for Christ. He said, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation which means that God is using us as his vessels, as his instruments here in the earth to share with people that regardless of where you've gone, that God's more interested in where you're going and that he wants to heal you, restore you, forgive you, and make you whole instead of you living this life separated from him because he's done it for me and he can do it for you and our life needs to display that and show that. That's the message of the gospel. Not that we all of a sudden became good enough, but Jesus was good enough for us. And now he's working on us to show Christ to the world because I've died to myself. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. We as followers of Jesus are called to deny ourselves, to crucify this flesh. We've been given this message, this mandate to share and live the message of reconciliation. I was in uh, Qdoba the other day and uh, my wife and I were going to have a little lunch date. 
And so I said, where do you want to go? She said, let's go to Qdoba. I said, sure. So we go there. I don't know if you've been to Qdoba in Sheboygan or not, but the parking lot's awful. Like, it's like the worst parking lot to navigate. And we went at noon, okay? So it's like noon, it's packed. And if you try to get vehicles in and out of those little parking spaces, it's a challenge. You hope one of the ones up front are open because the ones on the side... They're just rough to get in and out of. Well, I saw this car backing out. It had the uh, reverse lights on. And I got all excited thinking that meant they're going to back up. But that apparently meant I'm going to have my foot on the brake while I have my car in reverse. And I'm going to look for something in my car, check my Facebook for five minutes. And so I'm waiting while this person has their reverse. It was probably one of you, by the way, that you're laughing. So I'm waiting on this person to back up, and I'm, I'm kind of here, and while I'm waiting, another vehicle comes the opposite direction and also looks at that parking spot, so now we're at a standoff. <laughs> I was there first, by the way. Well, then the lady on the right of me, she's got to get out now too, and she's waiting on this standoff to end and waiting on this car to back out. And the lady honks her horn, and gives me some hand gestures, and I look at her, and I'm trying to be the nice guy, and I said, I'm stuck, because I was stuck. I was waiting on this, and now this car had decided to begin to back out. Well, as I begin to back out, I look at this other guy, this guy that's facing me, trying to get in there, has like the biggest SUV you've ever seen, and I'm like, there's no way you're getting in that parking space, and I know there's no way he can angle in there with his big vehicle. And so here he's kind of halfway turned, and I'm facing, and this car's back out, and this lady's over here. And all of a sudden, I just said, you know what? I'm going to get out of the way. I put my car in reverse, and I backed completely out. And just about that time, another spot opened up, and I went and got it. And that guy ended up going into the spot that I was waiting on. It was fine. Well, it so happened that this guy was going to go and eat lunch in Qdoba as well. Great. So now I'm going to see this guy. So me and my wife are in line, and we're looking at the menu, and this guy walks in right behind us, and he's standing right behind me. And my wife said, he's coming. <laughs> and I had a decision to make in that moment. In that moment, I could either just keep on going, we could just not speak to each other, or I could just, you know, talk about the elephant in the room. So I just turned around, and I said, hey, man, sorry about all that. That was really confusing. I said, those are really small parking spaces, and this is a tough lot to navigate. You know, my bad. I I hope I didn't frustrate you too much. He said, oh, it's not a big deal. He said, stuff happens. I said, well, I said, I just want you to know that I wanted, I intended that parking space to to be for you. I said, so I hope that you ended up getting that parking space. He said, yeah, I did. He said, thanks. And, And we went on. Everybody was fine. Now, I decided to talk to the guy because I wanted to show him Christ in that moment instead of seeing who was right, all right? Now, I know that's a little thing, and that's kind of silly to even bring something that small up, and we want to dismiss it quickly, but here's the problem with that, is that it's always the little things that feed our attitudes, and if we feed our flesh in those little things then when those big things come up, we're still going to react and respond the same way because we've been practicing really good at all these little things. And so we need to make sure even in the little moments that we're willing to allow our hearts to be humbled to do the God-honoring thing in a given circumstance to show Christ to another person because it's not about us. 
Now, before, if I would have not said anything, my wife and I would have sat down. First, it would have been awkward. We would have probably been upset about the situation, and we would have probably talked about it the whole time. About, and then we probably would have gotten in the car and still said something about it. And you know, you've been there. It's frustrating when things like that happen. But when we cleared the air, when we let it go, guess what? It was done. We didn't even mention it the rest of the day. And I think about little things like that and how God gives us opportunities to respond in Christ-like manners, to show the world something different, to show the world a different response. Because selflessness is not the norm in our society. And when we react selflessly and we're willing to speak into a situation where we could have been selfish, the world kind of goes, what? That's weird. I wasn't expecting that. And it shows Christ to the world. There's another story that's not quite as comical because it was very painful for me that there was an individual that really offended me that I had gotten particularly close to and had earned my trust over a number of years and that I thought we had done some great things together, thought that there was a lot of good accomplished there in our relationship. And I knew our relationship wasn't perfect. I wasn't foolish. But this person, for lack of better words, just really betrayed my trust at a very deep level. And it hurt me in a very, very personal way. And I didn't respond as Christ would respond oftentimes. My wife and I got very offended and we spoke about our offense to one another regularly. We were upset very much about the things that transpired and we were honestly hoping that the person would just fail because of the deep offense we had felt and that we still had been holding on to. And I held on to that thing for about two, two and a half years before God kindly uh, uh, showed me the mirror and said, you need to deal with this. I'm like, come on, God. <laughs> come on, don't you know what they did? <laughs> don't you know how wrong they are? Because I would get just as excited and angry talking about it as if it just happened yesterday, and it could have been two years after the fact. And, and God said, it's time to deal with this. And so I reached out to the individual and sat down and spoke with them and talked to them and then sat down and spoke with them again and again and again. And we're not best friends or anything like that in that situation. But at the same time, I can still with a clear conscience and with a pure heart begin to interact with that person because of what God has done in my heart instead of me allowing my offense to be built up to where I was angry because of the betrayal and the hurt and the pain that I was feeling. I had to make a decision to not make it about me. Are you hearing me this morning? And I mean, I'm talking pretty deep personal betrayal uh, people throwing you under the bus for no good reason, and it just, it, it, it was hurtful. And I took the responsibility because God confronted me, even though in my flesh I was waiting on them to come and say they're sorry. Even though in my flesh I was waiting on them to say, hey, all that stuff that happened, I'm, I'm sorry. I wanted that, and I felt I deserved that. But I didn't get that. That's... I, I, I didn't get that. Instead, God said, you take responsibility and you go and do this. In other words, I kind of, you know, I, I didn't get, you know, swallowed up by like some giant salmon in Lake Michigan or anything, but, but I still got confronted with myself and I had a choice. What was I going to do? And man, was that an uncomfortable conversation? Absolutely it was. But was it the God-honoring thing to do? Absolutely it was. And I wish I had done it sooner. 
because it had been poison to me for a long time. It's ridiculous to allow those things to become poison. That's not God-honoring, and you're not winning by holding your position of being right. Oh, somebody, like, oh, you guys. Yeah, come on, amen, pastor, yes. That, let me tell you something, you are not winning by holding on to your position of feeling that you're right. You're not winning. Matter of fact, you're losing. You're losing because you're giving place to the devil. I know I've done it. You've done it. And when we realize it, what are you going to do about it then? Are you going to be more concerned about the plant? Are you going to be more concerned about another person's soul? Instead of talking about how bad people have treated us and let us down and disappointed us, why not instead spend that energy praying for them? ministering to them in whatever way that you can, whether it's present with them or, or on your knees in private praying for their heart, praying for God to open their eyes, praying for them to see the things that you see in your own life, in your own need for Christ, because we all need Jesus, amen? And here's something we always need to be asking God to help us to maintain and grow in, is a tender heart. God, help me to have a tender heart. Because we can get so hard in our heart towards people when they've wronged us. God, help me have a tender heart because you care for that person. Help me care for that person like you care for that person. Because right now, I don't really care for God, help me care for that person. God, help me see them through your eyes. Because God doesn't rejoice over the atheist that dies. So we shouldn't rejoice over that person that was, we would consider an enemy if they fall or fail. You see, a tender heart towards God empowers us to love others the way he loves. It's maintaining that position of having a tender heart. It's maintaining that position of saying, God, it's not right what they did, and I'm not saying it's right what they did. But God, help my heart not to be hardened in the process. Because if your heart gets hardened in the process, you're giving place to the devil. And God tells us, don't give opportunity. Don't give place to the, to the evil one. And we give opportunity to the enemy when we hold on to bitterness and, and resentment and unforgiveness. But that tender heart towards God, it, it empowers us to love others the way that God loves people. You know, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Maybe you've missed it. But we have this big, huge red wall as soon as you walk into the building. And one of the first things you see is love God, love people, serve the world. And those things have to be done in sequence because they flow off of one another. You see, it starts with a love for God, putting God first, living a God-first life in a me-first world by saying, God, it's not about me, it's about you. So I'm going to put my attention and my affection on you, and I'm going to grow in my love for you and my trust in you and my dependence on you and, and, and exploring how awesome your love is for me so that your love can begin to transform my heart so I can begin to love people the way you love people. As I begin to grow in loving people the way you love people, then I will be able to genuinely and authentically serve them. And I'm serving them with what? What am I serving them with? With the love of God that was 
given to me, and I'm serving them with that love so they can receive that love, and so they can love God, and so they can love people, and so they can serve. You see, that's what a tender heart will do, church. That kind of love will change the world. That kind of love is not interested in being right or avenged. A love like that doesn't allow bitterness to rule and reign in our hearts. A love like that does the unthinkable and forgives the unforgivable and loves the unlovable. That kind of love breaks chains of bondage. That kind of love brings healing, restoration, reconciliation, and a tremendous glory to God through our lives being a living gospel to the world. Loving God, loving people, serving the world, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus, loving like Jesus loved, denying yourself, dying to yourself so Christ could shine bright through your life and bring healing to your heart as well. So here's what I want to ask us to do. I want to ask us to humble our hearts before God. Humble our hearts before God, not by saying who's right, but by saying, God, what's right? What's the right thing to do that Christ would have me do in any given situation to where maybe there's some deep-seated bitterness? Maybe like Jonah, we're sitting on a hill waiting for people to pay for the wrong they've done. Maybe we, like Jonah, are waiting for someone to fail, but over and over again we see in Scripture where God tells us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us. And it's just as much for us as it is for the other person, and it brings glory to God. Is it easy? No. (laughs) Neither is telling a guy that that was my parking space. Neither is telling a guy that offended you, that betrayed your trust, that tried to throw you under the bus. Neither is telling him, hey, I forgive you. It's not easy. I'm not saying this stuff is easy. I, I, I don't want you to mistake this message as being something that's just super easy to just walk out and do. It, it can be hard. You want to know why? Because you're dealing with the flesh. Crucifying anything is not pretty sacrificing anything if you look at old testament sacrifice it's it's not pretty there's pain involved there's some ugliness that comes out there's things that get done that are uncomfortable but yet god says the cost of following jesus every time that jesus is asked that question he says if you love your life he said man you're you're gonna you're gonna really lose out on this thing He said, but if you're to lose your life for my sake, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. He asked the rich young ruler, sell everything you got and follow me. He couldn't do it. He told people, he said, don't worry about going and burying these folks, your your mother and father. That sounded harsh. But he said, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow me or not? What's this worth to you? What's the exchange worth? Jesus did not make this something that was just super easy to just ah, casually follow Jesus because Jesus is not interested in casual followers. He's interested in sold out people for the cause of Christ. I'd be willing to say, it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives within me. It's not about me. So God, what would you have me do? What would bring you the most honor? Because it's not about me being right. It's about your glory. It's about your honor. So how can I live my life for you as a living sacrifice? That's what he's interested in. So humble your heart. Humble your heart. God, what are you specifically asking me to do today? 
It could be someone in this room that you need to have repentance, reconciliation with. It may be someone you're sitting next to. It may be someone that you spent Thanksgiving with. It's probably someone you spent Thanksgiving with. It may be someone who's passed away that it's time for you to handle business with God. Whatever it is, can you humble your heart before the Lord as He holds up that mirror? He's not doing it to shame you. He's not holding up the mirror to embarrass you. He's not holding up the mirror to point out your imperfections. He's holding up the mirror so you can see your sin, so you can be broken over it and repent over it and be healed and freed. So you can extend that to other people as well. Holy Spirit, do your work in us. Do you lead us and guide us into all truth? Help us to see the truth that sets us free this morning. Help us see the truth that you are good and that we're not the judge. Help us to see the truth that you are good and vengeance is yours, says the Lord. Help us to see the truth as you hold up the mirror in front of us today and our heart is being exposed here and there's no running away from it. In this moment, Lord, I pray you help us to see the things that we need to handle, the things that we need to release and we need to speak forgiveness towards. Perhaps even conversations that we need to have, I pray you give us courage to do those things. The things we've been sitting on holding on for too long, Lord, and the things that have poisoned our hearts, and we haven't seen it. Other people have tried to show us, but we but we haven't seen it. Help us to see it today. Help us to see it today so we can be broken over it, so we can repent of it. Help us to, help us to see it so we can find healing and we can extend that healing and grace to other people. Thank you for being so merciful to us. Your mercies are new every morning, God, even when we mess up and we do all the time. But your word says your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for that promise. Thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new. I pray that you work on our hearts, God, and that it will cause us to act. And it will cause us, Father, the next time that circumstances come up that would want to cause offense, that we handle those things in a Christ-like manner, that we show Christ to the world, that we show Christ to our coworkers, Christ to our family members, Christ to our spouse, Christ to our children, Christ to our church members and our fellow uh, congregation members here at church. That we show Christ to our neighbors, to our parents, to our grandparents, to those who have wounded us. Help us show them Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Help our hearts to remain tender before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.